Hello everyone and welcome to Much Better People. This is a podcast created to be alongside you during those transitional times in life, but especially the ones that kick in your ass a little bit more than others. I'm your host Somya and each week I'm joined by a new guest to discuss their loves and losses and the lessons that they've learned from those things that they'll bring moving forward into the future. So I'm really delighted to introduce today's guest, Nikki Jenkins. I came across Nikki actually on a Facebook page um, for female solo travellers and the status that she posted really grabbed me because it was very heartfelt and moving and open and I was like, right, I need to know more about this woman. Nikki talks about the fact she's going travelling solo in Southeast Asia and she's booked a one-way ticket to Bangkok. It's just like a woman after my own heart because I've done the same thing for Mexico. But Nikki also talks very openly about a monumental loss that she's experienced, which is the loss and the death of her husband, Rory. And when talking about that, you know, it just really opened up so much conversation on the status as well, with so many people connecting to Nikki's story. And, you know, there she was nine years ago, Rory died and her and her children have been navigating life since then. So I asked her to come and talk to me about love and loss and asking her to share some lessons going forward. Nikki is also, in terms of the traveling aspects of what she's doing, she's got a page which you can follow called My Low Season Adventure. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the episode as well. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Well, thank you for asking me. It's really nice. That's all right. The podcast is obviously in its infancy, so you're taking a real <laughs> taking a real chance, which is really, really good of you. You were working as a broadcast journalist up until very recently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're talking about love, obviously, as one of these kind of themes. And I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about Rory and how you met, because I actually don't know. I didn't ask <laughs> before. <laughs> um we met we met in the BBC. We both worked for the BBC. Um, I went to Leeds University and I really bravely crossed the road and went to work for the BBC. I went to answer phones for three days and stayed for 32 years. So, okay. Um, and I can remember the first time I met Rory, he was the afternoon show presenter. And I can remember being introduced to him and thinking he had really nice forearms. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> Which is um, sort of fairly niche thing to notice about somebody, isn't it? But um, yes, I can remember our first meeting and he was tall, handsome, fair, um, had this amazing warmth and charm about him, the loudest laugh in the room. But yeah. um, despite being quite a kind of, um, well, a really well-educated and a clever man, wore it very lightly, kind of enjoyed a gossip and that kind of thing. So he was kind of intimidating and relaxing all at the same time. And we we ended up working together. And okay. it took us two years to actually become a couple. Um, we were both in other relationships. So I think we both assumed that the other one wouldn't be interested. And, you know, eventually it became clearer and clearer that we had loads in common and we got on really, really well. So it wasn't a kind of an easy start in that, you know, it wasn't kind of like meet, fall in love, go straight on but I, I can remember seeing him and thinking oh he's lovely from yeah. the moments I saw him and then over the years of working kind of thinking oh no I really 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 like him I really 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 like him <laughs> but sort of ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it and um, by the time we actually got together we agreed within about two weeks to get married so oh, wow. it was kind okay. of, <laughs> once it finally happened we were we were such good friends by that stage and so happy to be together um 
there were still rocky bits, you know, um, because we'd been in other relationships. Not everybody was happy. Um, okay. His, his mum wasn't a fan. <laughs> she, I might tell her that I'm doing this and I'll be able to be honest. <laughs> it's all ancient history. It's all ancient history. But, you yeah. know, so there was, it, it didn't all just fall into place and we didn't tell a lot of people we were going out together for quite a long time. We didn't tell people that we were getting married for even longer. I don't think we told anyone for about nine months because mm-hmm. nobody else was ready, but we knew that we were and that we were with the right people and really, really happy. But um, we had to wait for the rest of the world to catch up with where we were at, really. So, Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That gives a, you know, that paints a really great picture of, yeah, who you were as a couple as well, not just as individuals. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think we were always... Um, I mean, we were super, super tight. We, I mean, we never... It sounds like a cliche, but we never argued. I think he was probably knew that I was a bit of a stroppy old cow and he was very laid back. So, you know, he didn't sweat the small stuff. So he, I, I always believe that a relationship that works, you you are the better version of yourself with that person. They kind of make you more than the sum of your parts. But yeah. when we were out and operating, one of the things I think we both really liked about each other was that if we went out somewhere, we barely talked to each other. You know, we'd arrive at a party and we'd go off and do our own thing. And then we'd come back at the end of the evening and chat to each other about what it had been like. But we didn't need that kind of social crutch or anything. And and that was actually quite important to me because I didn't want to be worrying about whether or not somebody yeah. else was OK all the time. Um, so we operated quite independently, but we were really thick as thieves and... Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, it, it sounds really, really wonderful and beautiful. And I think it's thinking, I suppose, about love in general, if you bring it forward to now, difficult in, in the sense of what you had just worked so in, well. And there's not really a way to kind of intellectualize it. And I think I'm just kind of thinking or relating it back to, I suppose, dating dating and relationships in this new age. <laughs> I'm old now, I'm 30. Um, and it's it's really hard to find those kind of organic moments and times to run into people. It does seem really different now. I mean, so I was 22, 23 when I met Rory. We got, I was 26 when we got married. He was nearly exactly three years older than me. There's only four days between our birthdays. So, so in a way... I suppose I've been a serial monogamist up until then, um, but I hadn't had loads of relationships and neither had he. And it, it was really easy. We, we had a, we've got a really good friend still who used to spend her whole time going, but how do you know? How do you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we used to go, you just know, you just know. And I think having some faith in that is, you know, maybe not questioning it too much. I mean, I think maybe because we were young as well, we grew together, we had lots of stuff happen to us and, I suppose some of the things that might break some people up, it becomes the cement, doesn't it? It becomes that shared experience. And now that he's gone, so much of my life is sort of mixed up with him and I didn't share it with anybody else. And that that was a really hard thing when he died because you you wonder how much you're going to lose because you just don't remember and the other person is the kind of repository, they're the the guardian of all those experiences that you shared together. And you, you can't do the look across the room anymore or the rolled eyeball or the you know, just the knowledge that you were there. And, um, you know, in a long and really happy marriage, they're always eventful. So, you know, there's stuff like the birth of the children that other people try to say nice things to me about it. And it always leaves me a bit hollow because I just kind of think, no, you're not invested in this in the same way. You can say, you can be kind, but it's just not the same. So, so yeah, you know, it's a, it's a different world, isn't it really? But I think if you can if you're lucky enough to meet someone fairly early on, you sort of shape each other and you have to do less 
trying to change the person to fit in with the person you've already become. Yeah, of course. And I think, like you said, being that age, you know, I'm sure there are lots of couples that get together and and maybe they're not going to have the same story, obviously, but their trajectory might be quite similar. And I guess, yeah, life happens and shit shit happens and awful things, you know, (laughs) happen. And unfortunately, yeah, you know, many couples don't make that. And I wonder with you and Rory, if you could kind of talk a little bit about that connection when bad things had happened in in the marriage and and what you think kind of held you together and and how you supported one another? We didn't really verbalise it. I think speaking personally, I mean, I don't know how he viewed it all, but really early on I worked out that the things that frustrated me about him were the flip side of the things I really loved like I say, he w- he was very laid back and really easygoing. Um, and occasionally, I'd be, a bit more, I'd be a bit more like, we need to do this, we need to do that, you know, why aren't we getting on top of this? And he would just never do it. I mean, finance is an interesting one, isn't it? I worked out really early on, I'd be mithering and saying, oh, we need to work out what our expenditure is so that we can work out where we can save and we can be on top of everything. And he'd sort of nod and agree. And then I worked out a few years into the relationship that he never, ever looked at the bank balance. (laughs) It's got some really bad things to confess, isn't it? And so he never stressed about it. And I thought, well, if he's not stressed, then I'm not going to be stressed. I'm not going to look at the bank balance either. And we were both kind of quite modest livers, you know, neither of us have like sort of expensive habits. So we kind of live within our means. And my attempt to kind of make him more, I don't know, sort of career-minded or more... It, it was pointless because that was the Rory I loved and that was the kind of the flip side of the personality trait and I wouldn't have changed the sort of the main part of him. So you then grow to just accept that the flip side is part of that and I think... And then you're at peace with it because, yeah, you just accept yeah. it as part of a personality. Um, and we were just a good mesh anyway. I mean, he wasn't very sort of... As you can tell, I'm probably quite gobby and quite loud. And he he was quite loud as well on occasions, but far more kind of, um, you know, less alpha. He wasn't a very alpha-y man. So there was kind of room yeah. for quite an alpha-y woman. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes men like that are, are actually the alphas. It's not the loud ones that are in everyone's faces. Yeah. Because they've got like a solidness yeah. to them and, and this, uh, you know, sensitivity. But, you know, even on, so Rory did all the cooking. So mm. that meant he did all the shopping. You know, and we both held down jobs and he did loads of the childcare because I would do the morning drop off and he would do the afternoon pickup. And, and you know, so he would really picked up half and half of the, um, you know, the household chores. He was the sort of person who would do the laundry, who would do the housework. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a completely unapologetic feminist, so I was kind of like, oh, you're not getting me doing all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't even a question. So we had all that kind of balance. But yeah, so it was, it was, I mean, it sounds so smug. We called ourselves the smug couple. We kind of knew we had it really good and we just complimented each other. So when the bad things happened, we had each other's backs. And so with the stuff that happened with his mum, I never doubted that he was on my side. You know, he would occasionally sort of, you know, say go a bit easy, but he would never make me feel that he wouldn't have my back 100%. And when our daughter was born really prematurely, you know, it was happening to us and we were, yeah, we just supported each other really, really well through all of that. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was really easy, which is kind of how a good relationship should be, really, shouldn't it? You shouldn't be spending your time thinking, oh, how am I going to make this work? 
I haven't had anybody on here, you know, that, that has experienced such a love like you have. I just enjoy listening to you talk about it. It's just everything about it and the way you light up. And it's just so nice to hear it exists. And I feel like people listening to this are like, yes, it's out there. <laughs> oh, well, I'm always a bit nervous with my kids, you know, because we do talk about what a good relationship it was. And you, you sort of go, am I, am I gilding the lily? Is this like rose tinted spectacles because he's not here anymore? But genuinely, you know, and we've got friends who would say, or oh, you you could just see it. It was just the easiest relationship on the face of the planet. And I, I do worry about putting it on too much of a pedestal because I think, um, you know, I, I don't want my kids to be having some kind of ridiculous idea of what a good relationship is. Because I, I suppose, you know, in the nitty gritty in the early stages, when you're not sure if, if it's mm. going to make or not, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I always say to my kids, I think, um, You've both got to think you're punching, you know. If if one of you thinks that you've settled, you're in the wrong relationship. You know, um, when we first got together, all the women who worked on reception at Radio Leeds used to go to me, oh, you know, oh, you've done well, haven't you? And I think, well, not exactly scraped the bottom of the barrel himself. I'm not that much of a booby prize. But, you know, I kind of got it. I kind of thought, yeah, you know, I really feel like I'm punching. And I think he must have felt the same way because, you know, you don't want to be with someone you don't think's worthy do you <laughs> of course yeah and to have that own kind of you know your own self-worth as well and have that self-confidence I think it's really important because again that if you know if you are very anxious about that yeah. or uncertain that can then impact your relationship I, I can imagine it become a bit of a downward spiral but that's the thing isn't it it's like a, mm. being in a good relationship is like an upward spiral so you know it does just become easier because the other person says the right things and makes you feel good about yourself and like I say you become your the very best version of yourself and and that was part of what was so awful about when he died because um okay and I would make me teary but I'm okay I just felt like I was such an awful version of myself and that I let the kids down and things like that hmm. because you didn't have um you know at the time that you really needed to raise your game you didn't have your main cheerleader in the corner and you knew that all your worst character traits came out that had just been dormant mm. for years because you were never challenged. And when you were challenged, you had somebody who was sort of the yin to your yang and kind of picked up yeah. where you weren't really kind of doing your best. And it's like a sort of tag team, isn't it? Like with parenting, we were like a tag team. If you could see one of you was struggling, yeah. it would be like, oh God, let you go, you go. Um, and suddenly when you're on your own, you didn't have your kind of person to come and say, yeah, you need to step back now. And so you just disappear into this kind of, oh, you know, some really awful, awful moments. And yeah, I kind of felt quite a lot of, um, well, it's like, a, well, it's a double grief, but it also goes with a bit of shame with all of that as well, because you're struggling and, you're, and you can't raise out of it. So that's kind of the flip side. But I think what you said is, the way you worded it as well, it painted a picture for me in the sense that obviously I can't imagine anything like that because I'm very fortunate and I've not experienced that kind of loss or, you know, grief. Um, but when you were talking about tag teaming parenting, it's almost like you realise you've lost something about yourself that you didn't even know oh, you could. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're talking about these traits that he has and you both kind of make up for where one lack, you are suddenly confronted not just with grieving your husband and raising your children and without that that regular that usual support but then you've got to think about yourself and, and what's maybe perhaps lacking there which is a huge huge thing to deal with it's really profound isn't it I've got a really good friend and she just said to me well it's a catastrophe you know it's the absolute definition of a catastrophe and um I don't know if 
Do you remember when you were a kid, if you if you messed up in some way, you know, like if you broke something because, you know, you're stropping yeah. around or you did something that you shouldn't do and, and it goes too far and you, you smash the window or you break the vase or something and you can feel that kind of like, oh, shit, 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 shit. And that doesn't happen to you very often as an adult. You've got autonomy, you've got control. And when somebody dies, you know, we'd spent nine years with this disease uh, and there were, it was bookended by two moments, the moment of diagnosis where you get told that someone's got an incurable cancer. But even then you you hear treatable and you go, oh, well, that'll be all right. By the time he's been treated, they'll have mm-hmm. a cure. You know, you go into this kind yeah. of massively positive thing. So you have that moment where your life falls off a cliff. And then, and I've said this to lots of friends who've been diagnosed since, you know, you, you will live with cancer. You you can, and you get used to it and it becomes normal and you function. And, you know, now an increasing number of people get well again, but you will be okay. But then the the other moment that I don't talk to them about is the moment when that person dies or when they lose, or you know that they're definitely going to die. Um, and, f- and for us, because he got a he'd had sort of stem cell transplants and he'd had so much chemo it wasn't even countable but always we were looking for the next phase and so he'd gone through a donor transplant from his brother and we thought it was all going quite well and he got an infection and he died within like five Mm. days so he was in hospital and then on a ventilator so we didn't get any of the kind of time to talk to each other or say goodbye or even to sort of really realise that was it. It was just sort of me on my own at the end, realising that he wasn't going to make it. Um, and so and so that was the other kind of like, oh, my God, life's, life has gone so horrifically wrong. And that knowledge, the first thing that you realise is that you have no control. You, you can't do anything. And, we, you know, that's a really tough thing, especially as a parent and you know, you're always going to fix it. Don't worry, don't worry, I'll fix it. Don't worry, no, it's okay, we can do this. Don't worry, we can do that. And Rory always used to say, every time we had something new happened in his treatment, he'd go, don't worry, they've got another plan. And he said, so long as they keep coming back to me and saying, don't worry, we've got a plan, it would be okay. And then suddenly when they didn't have a plan, that was happening to all me on my own, you know, he was he was gone. Yeah. So that was that was really hard. And then... Like you say, you you suddenly realise that it sounds really sort of melodramatic, but you have lost everything. You have lost your sense of who you are, the sense of what your future was going to be. Um, you just have you have to reinvent yourself from the ground up. Yeah, when you're absolutely kind of at a loss of how to do it, it's such a it's such a mad thing that your life can be so entwined with somebody else that your sense of who you are without them is just gone, really. So I suppose when I said I didn't really like the term loss, <laughs> it's because my son's always really sarcastic when people say, have you lost your dad? You go, oh, no, we know <laughs> yeah. where he is. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. The, the profound loss of everything else that goes around it um, and having to learn who you are without that. And, and we used to talk as well about... Um, you know, when the when the illness was really bad, you know, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Your future is so close to you that you can't yeah. think beyond the next moment. And then occasionally, you know, the horizon would move away to three months to a year and you would start planning other things. And the grief thing was the same. You know, you're you're in such survival mode 
that you can only manage to get through the next moments really and it takes a long time before you find yourself actually thinking about what you might do next week or so really it's it's a really hard thing to describe it's uh, and you know the dull thing is that I'm not unique you know there's absolutely millions of us out there who've all been through it and and they'd all say similar things you know it affects everybody differently but but that sense of who am I where do I fit in a room do I just remind everybody else of what's gone yeah you know, and your head you must have been there where your head is so full of what's happening to you that you can sit in a crowded room and you're the most alone you've ever been. It's kind of, um, you're just living a different reality and that's exhausting. You're so tired yeah, yeah. because you're working so hard just to sort of keep breathing and putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, it's, of course, yeah. It's a shock. I wouldn't wish it on my yeah, worst enemy. Yeah, <laughs> I think as well, um, I heard something that a, well, a therapist said recently, which was that... And you may not agree, but essentially with grief, and I, I don't know if you felt anger as a big part of, of that, um, of that process, but also she was saying that anger and empathy are almost impossible to have together. So if you are in that kind of grieving, or that I call it a process, I guess it doesn't ever end. But if you, you know, are in a stage of that where you are very angry, as I can imagine, there'd be lots to be angry at. It's also very hard to have empathy. So then your relationships and maybe connections with the people around you who are trying to help could become quite strained. And I don't know if you experienced that or whether you, you were able to hold that space for other people. I got told that I was really angry. And I was quite upset by that because it wasn't what I was feeling particularly. What I was just feeling was so much pain that I think you're you're difficult and you're mm. prickly because you're just sort of in this kind of quite animalistic place where you're just in an awful lot of pain all the time. But I think people read it as anger sometimes. Yeah. Um, anger in a way is a far more positive experience. Mm -hmm. emotion isn't it you know it's kind of pushing out and it's pushing back and I think I had moments of that I never I never kind of felt I've had other widows talk to me about how you know they feel angry with their partner for dying and they have all that kind of stuff I don't think I ever had that because he was a he was a really good patient and he worked so hard to stay alive and to protect us from the reality of it all just by how well he handled yeah. his own sickness he was always a really good patient um you you can't have empathy because because you're in survival mm -hmm. mode um and but but then there's other widows i know who are really sort of angry or maybe appear to be angry but they're hurt they're upset by how they feel let down by other people and i think i recognized pretty early on that i'd been that bad friend on many many occasions because you don't have empathy for people until you realize quite how profound yeah. what they're going through is and so I kind of took it on myself. Maybe it's my personality and nature anyway, to try and explain a little bit. I was explaining it to myself as much as anything, but just to try and talk about it. And, and talking for me is a way of processing. You know, I would walk for miles and miles and miles and I would be kind of having this narration going through my head as I tried to process what had happened to me. And then I had some really good friends who I talked to about that and I would be really open about it and how hard it was partly in an effort to help myself, but also to help other people, because I think you can't turn around and say, you're not being the sort of friend I need you to be. And one of the most profound things is that people, you know, they do that kind of whatever you need, just tell me. And you are so lost that you just think, I, I, if I knew that, I'd be able to help myself. I'm just, yeah. yeah, you can't answer that question. So if you're lucky, you've got someone that you can just kind of chunter it over with, probably like some awful circular conversation. Yeah. But, um, 
I was re- I was really lucky. My fam- family and friends have been really, really good. But I think um, to expect other people to get it and to understand it when you don't even get it yourself is almost impossible. Kind of when you end up in sort of, I, I was in a group called Way, which is widowed and young. And so there's lots of people in a similar circumstance. And, you know, obviously some people lose their life partners before they've managed to have children because it's happened so young. Or, or you know, in the case of cancer, you hear of lots of people who are going through, they go through IVF with their partner's afterwards you know sometimes all sorts of stories so and there'll be this kind of a debate I suppose if you haven't got children is it better you just go off and start a new life because it's just you you've only got to care about Mm. whereas a lot of people who've got children say well it's the children who got me through because I had to get up and I had to get out of bed every day you know especially I think if you've got toddlers and things like that um I mean my kids were 12 and 15 so they were 13 and 6 when he was diagnosed and they were 12 and 15 when he died I mean, teenagers are tough anyway. I don't know if you remember what you were like as a teenager. I was horrible. <laughs> so it's a really, it was really, really difficult. And I think um, it's just all compounded, isn't it? Because you've got, you've got children who are grieving and bereaved. So they are experiencing really, really profound changes in their life. That The worst thing of it all is that, you know, I got to be, I was 45 before I experienced anything like this. You've already said it's never happened to you. My son knew what this was about when he was 12 years old. You know, that that really changes you as a person. Um, That really changes you, you know, to have sort of experienced the biggest loss in life at a really young age. And at an age where you're coming to terms with who you are and, you're surrounded by people who really don't get it, you know, um, because other kids aren't good. You know, they can almost be bullying. They can be they can be really hurtful. Other children caused us a lot of trouble, actually. You know, um, par- really early on when it became clear that my husband was ill, we'd never said to the children. They knew he had cancer and they knew that he had had to have lots of treatment, but we'd never told them that he was dying because he wasn't dying. This is the thing, you live with cancer for nine years. So we never said, oh, yeah. you know, dad's got a cancer and it's going to kill him. We'd say, no, it's okay. He's having treatment and he's well at the moment. It's all good, you know. So we would be as honest as we could. But we weren't accepting that he was dying. And most of the time he wasn't dying. He wasn't dying until the last five days. And yet my daughter really early on had all these kids come into the playground because we'd done something in the press. Um, Rory was a newsreader on Radio 4. So he was relatively high profile, if you like, Radio 4. <laughs> no one would know who the hell he was otherwise. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so there was a programme on Radio 4 and a load of the newsreaders and announcers and various people did a big fundraiser and it got written about in the paper. And then it sort of moved from our control as a family. The story got out and we lost control of the narrative and it got talked about in the playground and kids were coming up to my daughter and going, oh, I'd be so sad if my dad was going to die. So the kid thing is really, really hard. And their experience of grief and their experience of loss and their experience of the whole of Rory's illness is utterly different to mine. And that has become clearer and clearer over the years where we've even discussed things and things that I just thought they knew or that we've been open about or that were really obvious they just didn't know and the yeah. moments that stand out to them and the way it's impacted them is is so different that it, it that that's that's a real eye opener you know as a parent you think you're across it 
And then uh, as as you get older, you just realise. And then, of course, you get all these sort of behaviours and acting out and stuff that is really complicated to deal with. And like I say, you don't deal with it very well because you're not at your A game either. So, um, you know, I was quite yeah. keen that the kids knew, you know, there's a lot of narrative at the time about how you have to show that you're upset. <laughs> you think, yeah, no, I, I think they got that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that is it's good and it's bad and it's been hard and they're kind of they are the most amazing people um I think obviously a little bit biased I've obviously done an amazing job I get called (laughs) mad on Mother's Day I get a mad card from mum and dad which is really nice um I I still mess it up all the time but we are fundamentally pretty close because I don't think you can go through stuff like that and not come out the other side pretty close uh, and that's that's a lovely thing, but um, you know that's all part of this as well. You know, I, I when Rory died, I was fast forwarding. I'd been like, kind of, oh, when you've gone, we're going to be off around the world. We're going to be living our high life. You know, can't wait till the parenting responsibilities are done. Rory died, and I was like, don't leave me, don't leave me. And and I knew of course, yeah. because it shapes your life. You've got people to come home to. You've got people to care for. You've got a role. You've got stuff you've got to do. And I just knew that the time was going to come when they wanted to live their life and what I'm doing now, I've almost been future-proofing myself for this moment quietly in the back of my brain yeah. ever since because I can't be their burden. You know, I've got to, I've got to work out a way to live my life when I'm, I'm not a wife anymore. I'll always be a mum, but I can't, you know, I'm not a full-time mum. I can't, I can't be their problem. So this is part of my solution really. So a bit drastic, but. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not the worst plan. Um, I think you as well are evolving as a parent with them, which is really nice to hear because especially when you experience something, which I would call obviously very traumatic and you do have that additional bond, I would say, in terms of supporting one another, especially as they get older naturally I'd imagine they are going to you know worry and 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 be concerned but the fact that you've actually you've even preempted that you know (laughs) you're showing everyone showing everyone else's mum's up but (laughs) I just think that's the real kind of I guess testament to your parenting but also who you are as, as a person and it feels reflected in in the relationship with Rory as well in your marriage and you've really built that solid foundation obviously before you had children which is which is really really important um, so it's nice to see it, you know, it's extended way, way into the future and even now. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. That's really nice to hear you say that back, actually, because it's maybe something that I wouldn't see myself. So thank you. That's all right. <laughs> so in terms of, I guess, the podcast itself, talking love, loss and kind of compartmentalizing a little bit. But these things, of course, bleed into one another massively. Losses, I suppose, I just use that word as a kind of overarching theme was there anything else that was quite unexpected that maybe um you'd experienced when when Rory died that that perhaps um might just be helpful to share I think it is just understanding how brittle and lost that person is probably it's not so much that you the the person who died in some ways is well out of it you know they they don't live in the aftermath and the aftermath's a really difficult place to be um and you do just need people to be patient with you you need to be patient with yourself. I mean, you get ill, you know, I ended up having to, I had all these weird cysts and God knows what, you know, you're just not well. Uh, and I, I suppose it, it is that stepping up for people and maybe it's leaving a, some food on the doorstep or it's just, 
giving someone a hug and that whole thing about not knowing what to say to somebody. Well, you know, you you just cry all the time. You, well, I was the leakiest person going, you know, and I still cry far more readily. Yeah. Um, but just knowing that you're not making that person cry, that you know, they are crying because they will cry anyway. Yeah. Um, but one of, one of the most amazing gifts people can bring you when someone's died is stories, what they said, okay. what they did, how yeah. you remember them, because they're really finite and you don't get many new ones. And also because memory is a strange thing, you know, they fall into these handful of stories that epitomizes that person. Um, and they get quite well rehearsed and they start to set a more kind of, um, oh, yeah, that's what he was like. And I think even with the kids at the moment, we, we've never watched video back of Rory. We're, we're still quite rubbish, really. Um, and we keep thinking maybe now's the time because, you know, you, you get to this next stage of grief where you're, you, you grieve the fact that you're not unhappy enough almost because and that your memories aren't um, okay. firm enough and that you've got one or two fleeting images, but you don't have more. So if someone comes along and tells you something that they did or something that they said or something you remember, um, you know, all that is finite now. He's, Rory's not making any more memories. There aren't any more photographs. So you've seen them all. And anybody who sort of brings you a little morsel like that, it's like... You're greedy for it. So that's if you've if you know someone who's been through something like that yeah. and you're thinking, oh, you know, I was thinking of so and so the other day, that just dropping into someone's DMs, you know, and saying, Yeah, you know. I think it's more profound because like I say, there's lots of people who do lose their loved ones really young. And it happens a lot, you know, but but people are really invisible. And that's one thing, you know, you talk about lessons is that I learned really quickly is that you know, you don't know what's happening in someone's life. Everybody looks normal on the outside and they're sort of quite often really struggling with an awful lot. And so, you know, a little bit of kindness goes a long way, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, when you were talking about your relationship with Rory and I guess the love aspect of, of the episode, one of the things you said was that he really just had your back and that resonated with me massively um, in terms of, I guess one of the motivators of starting this podcast was for me, a loss of a relationship, mm. obviously in a very different way. Um, but that person really didn't have my back and I, I didn't appreciate, I suppose, when you really love someone and trust them and, and they don't, the way that that can kind of actually, um, and of course I'm not comparing our situations at all, but having had therapy and still having it, um, has actually been described as almost a grief because you sort of grieve uh, a sense of yourself what you thought was there and the connection you thought was there and suddenly when when that's gone um you know and that trust is kind of massively breached you're suddenly then left alone and actually you do just have yourself so you might not think about and I never thought about the fact that a, you know a five-year relationship ending was grief in any way because I just think that's almost like being a bit flippant about like somebody yourself who's you know, literally your husband's died. And I, I was a bit like to my therapist, she's like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Kind of thing. And she was like, no, of course I'm not objectively comparing the situations. One is, you know, just absolutely, like you say, catastrophic and fatal and awful. But she was like, you have to acknowledge um, these smaller kind of complex um, cycles or cyclical periods of loss and grief, even within other, um, you know, things that end like relationships or very, very kind of, important friendships I would really agree with that 
I mean, I know that some widows get really upset because there's always a divorcing yeah. friend who kind of goes, oh, I know exactly how you feel. And, you know, widows kind of go, you've got no idea. <laughs> but but I, I don't entirely agree with that because I think I think you're right. It's this um, you have to allow yourself to grieve for what you thought would be and that you now won't happen. And And I think actually... I've got friends who've been going through divorces and it's compounded. Rory never betrayed me. He never let me down. He doesn't walk around in the world being an asshole. <laughs> you know, there's, there, there are no trust issues, you know. Um, so they're, they're just yeah. different, aren't they? I mean, you know, on, on the sort of death side, you don't get anybody who's got your back. You're bringing up children on your own. There isn't another parent in the world. Financially, you're entirely on your own. Every single decision you make is entirely on your own. Um, so they're, they're just different, but they, they do have overlap. I, th- I think, and, and I think both parties need to be sensitive because whenever you minimise somebody else's loss and what they're dealing with, it can be a bit tricky when people say it about their cats and dogs, but... <laughs> when my dog dies you know he's my last connection to Rory he was a puppy when Rory was around and and I know that when the dog dies that will be a kind of um you know you have this kind of layering of grief don't you and I think quite often when you have subsequent moments of bereavement quite often they're um, opening up all the past bereavements and they they're kind of a symbolic of a lot more aren't they so um so that is one of my biggest worries with going travelling is that I'm leaving the dog and, oh, God, please don't let the dog die whilst I'm away. It would be – that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that would be really, truly awful. Yeah. I'm more worried about that than my parents. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't wait till they listen to this. <laughs> well, I, I would run back for my parents. I'd probably yeah, run back for the first. dog, to be honest, but, you know, I might have less time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I'd be. I mean, I have a cat and I'm obsessed with him. He's called Baba O'Reilly, and everyone knows this that knows me because I, I literally am obsessed. Um, but yeah, I don't think I knock about comparing him him dying to someone's husband dying. But you know, it takes time, doesn't it? And and it knocks you, and and it, it needs to be acknowledged. I think when dreadful things happen, people just need to acknowledge them. Um, I think that's really important. There's there's a line in um, yeah. Death of a Salesman and she just says something like, um, a terrible thing is happening to a good man and it must be acknowledged. And I think when people die, people need to pause and just acknowledge yeah. it, you know, um, because somebody's having a truly awful time. You want to be seen, don't you, really? Um, and that doesn't have to be death. If someone's having a really awful time, just people taking the time to say, I see you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I, the way you phrase that, I see you. That really resonated with me. And once once they do acknowledge it, even if they don't really have anything, well, more to say or anything that eloquent or, you, or, you know, profound to say, but it's fine. Like you can't always be switched on. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, you can't, can you? Some things you can't say, the, you can't say the right thing. So just sort of acknowledging is kind of enough. Yeah, yeah just to say, I hear you. And I also just maybe not trying to pick it apart too much and just letting it sit. Because sometimes just letting the really, really awful and comfortable silence be there is necessary because, you know, it's worse to fill it. So I think um, yeah, that's important. But it is hard. It's really hard. And I suppose I, I work as a genetic counsellor, so I'm often having difficult conversations with people mm-hmm. and I'm giving them bad news. And, you know, I guess I now have quite a bit of experience of just hearing so many and seeing so many different reactions to that. And silence, I guess I, I think there's just never really a bad silence you know, if you are silent and and then you see that the person looks like they want you to say something or they maybe they are a bit uncomfortable, you can 
um, if you feel it's appropriate, just kind of move things forward. It's quite a good trick as well, because if you leave a bit of silence and and you just leave just enough time, people often do then just start to say something um, that they really probably did want to say, but there's been so much noise and kind of disruption uh, and chaos that, that, that maybe they wouldn't have tried to shout over to say it. It's funny you say that because obviously in my day job when I was a journalist, well, I suppose yeah. I still am a journalist after all this time, um, you know, that's that's one of the classic things that you, you do is is to give people space to speak. You know, obviously, we're, I think everyone always thinks of political journalism where they're sort of shouting at each other and repeating the question and demanding an answer. But in actual fact, it's really interesting. So just to kind of not be following up quickly with a question is quite often when you get the best answer because mm-hmm. people tend to fill a silence. But like, but it's interesting as well to be sitting on the other side of the microphone because I'm very rarely interviewed. Um, and I genuinely believed when I was working as a reporter that I was helping people. And I know people are really cynical about journalists and that we're all just out for the story. But but again, it's that thing that when something really profound has happened to somebody, you can't, the world shouldn't ignore it. They shouldn't walk away. And journalism is one of the ways that we talk about it and we learn from these shared experiences. And in actual fact, I think that even this process of talking to you makes you realise that being given a platform and being given a little bit of space and being asked questions is such a rarity that it does allow people time to think. And sometimes you're formulating your opinions as you say, I mean, I'm formulating this now. Just what you said to me made me think, yeah, you know, it's it's an important part of, or it can play an important part in helping people understand what's happened to them. And it can be happening in a journalistic environment or it can mm-hmm. be happening in a counselling environment or, you know, in the sort of world that you're in. But there is all this overlap I mean, I'm, I'm not advocating banging on people's doors when they've had a really terrible experience and sticking your size tens in and, you know, jumping up and down outside courts and things like that. All that bit's a bit horrible. And I do get that people are really traumatised like that. But there, but there is space sometimes yeah. to give people a platform, especially when, you know, especially when it's something more unusual, something that needs to change as a result, whether that's on the you know, macro or on the kind of micro sort of level. It's it's the same same thing, isn't it? So. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also adding to that thing of, of what you said before about seeing someone and hearing them. It's almost like validating what's happening is is worthy of, of attention and, and you know, um, yeah. something that's worthy of being shared. So we're kind of coming up to a natural end, I think, in terms of, you know, what we've discussed and the lessons that you've, you've shared. Is there anything else, um, I guess, I've not asked you about what that you wanted to say when thinking about the episode? Well, I suppose that where I am in life, so I decided when I got the opportunity that I would solo travel. And, you know, for, for a lot of people, that that's a difficult thing to do in itself. And it, and it's scary. And people say things like, oh, you're very brave. But people yeah. say that to you when someone's died, you know, whenever. And you just kind of think, well, I'm just trying to make the most out of a not great situation. And I'm doing it the best way that I can. And, and I kind of felt that, so the proposal I put forward with the travelling was to give myself a year to travel. And when I first proposed it, I was going to go for a whole year. I mean, it might work out slightly differently now. Who knows? I've become a bit more flexible in my thinking <laughs> once the reality is coming in. But it, it it kind of felt like um, I needed a really grand gesture to outweigh the kind of upheaval that's come before. And one of the good parts of it is that... Um, you know, I really feel like I've been through the absolutely worst thing that can happen. 
and I'm still standing and I'm okay. I'd rather be going traveling with Rory. I'd rather that we were just doing normal sort of family things and maybe taking the kids with us. But I feel like this sort of, I needed to do something just as uprooting as the whole grief experience has been to kind of, I don't know, to, to counterbalance it, to, yeah. you know, give me the hope of launching myself into the next part of my life to work out who I am, what I'm going to be, how my single existence is going to be. You know, I could have joined a dating agency. I could have tried to meet someone. I could have hoped that they had time and money to travel. I could have hoped that they liked me. Do you know what I mean? And that's waiting to live your life. So there's a double thing of kind of like, I've got to do something really profound to change my life as it is. I've got to not be scared of it because I know that if it's really terrible, I just come home. And the worst thing is that I've embarrassed myself a bit because I've blethered on about it. But I've talked it into existence because I said I was going to do it. And now I've got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just seems to be that there there is a kind of equilibrium in all of that. And that's kind of where I feel that I am about to kind of head off. And and I, you can't wait. There's, you know, life doesn't wait for you. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know how horribly wrong it can go really quickly. So you should do it now. And, you know, what's the worst that could happen? True. Just come home feeling embarrassed and go, yeah. well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but it no, probably it's... won't, you know. Yeah, exactly. And no, I think that's really important. I was just smiling a lot because you just really reminding me of, of exactly why I'm going as well. And I did the same thing. I bought a one-way non-refundable ticket because, <laughs> because I knew that if it was refundable, I, there would be a point where I would be sat there. And it actually happened last month. And I was like, no, what am I doing? This is insane. I'm leaving everything behind. And I, I don't really have a concrete plan. I'm just literally taking this podcast on the road um, and one bag. But then I was like, well, Sonia, you have to go because your ticket's non-refundable and it was quite a lot of money. So <laughs> forced myself into that, into that. Because I guess it's kind of like what you were talking about on a much lesser level of preempting what what maybe the, the, I knew what the future me would probably react like um, at, at points. And I was like, yeah, you forced, I forced myself. And yeah, I guess it's just also really nice. I don't know about you, but when I started to plan it, it just kind of came together maybe I'm lucky um but I felt like there'd be lots more kind of roadblocks and problems and issues and actually I just used I guess the skills that I use in normal day-to-day life and just applied them to to planning it all out um and it's been fine I just think I sat here and I thought I know what the next 20 years will be like if I stay here now and if I don't do something yeah to make the next 20 years interesting you know yeah and a choice not something that just happens to me you know, maybe I'm still trying to feel like I've got options because I've done the out of control bit. And then a little bit of me goes, oh, you know, why have I thrown my world up into turmoil like this? And I'm sure I'll be sitting in some god awful place with it all going a bit wrong, thinking (laughs) this is my own stupid fault. I bought it all on myself. I could have been living a nice, pleasant life in St. Albans. But um, yeah, I just knew what the next 20 years were going to be like. And I, I wanted a bit more, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, it's not brave, is it? I just think I just think that everybody should know that when they look at people who are doing things that they call brave, they're not. Yeah, no, we're (laughs) not not brave. brave. Anybody (laughs) could do it. You could do it. If you you just got to kind of scratch the surface a bit and just keep keep going for it and keep telling yourself it will be okay. Yeah. And I think just having, again, that belief or just knowing that 
you have what you need to do it for the most part. Maybe there are some really, really just stupid people out there. That just know, no, I don't believe that. But you know, you, if you, I guess if you can picture it and if you can conceptualize it, you're already just very far along because all the other stuff for the most part are practicalities. So you can figure yeah. those out. Um, but again, another, another thing for me, I suppose, was that connection and I've never been traveling. I've been obviously on holidays and things like that, but I've never just been on a trip by myself where I just have to rely on me and, and get on with it. And I think, yeah, I think it's going to be a really great experience. Um, and full circle, it's what, it's what led us to, to this episode and having these conversations. it's It's a privilege to have that opportunity to do it. And it's a privilege to, you know, it brings you good things. You know, we wouldn't have met. You put yourself out there, you take a little risk. I know we've all got lines in the sand. I don't take sort of emotional risks that often, but you, you occasionally think, well, but I won't be living life. And that, that is the biggest shame. You know, Rory was 48 when he died. He got too many years of life taken away for me to possibly sit at home and complain that life isn't what I want it to be. You, you do kind of feel you're not living life for them, but yeah, you know, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to get old. When I look at my face getting wrinklier and my hair getting greyer, I try to remind myself that that's because I'm lucky. And you yeah. said you were lucky. You know, you make your own luck in life. You put yourself out there and stuff comes back. And um, yeah, you know, so you, you deserve the luck you make. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice way to put it. <laughs> um, so thank you. I think that's yeah, a, a nice kind of end. And um, again, just like your status, you've been really open and honest and, and really warm with it as well. And articulate, gosh, <laughs> really articulate. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I've got to step up my game. <laughs> I would just like talking. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Um, so can you just tell me the name of the of the page you're yeah. running and, and doing? So the overview is, so I worked as Nikki Jenkins for the BBC. My married name is Nikki Morrison. So okay. I sort of exist in the world as both, which confuses everybody. I'm going to travel as Nikki Morrison because it's on my passports and I thought it'll get really confusing yeah. if I change that. Um, and I'm at Milo Season Adventure on Facebook and on Instagram. So that's where I'm going to put everything out there once I get going. Yeah, so if anybody wants to follow along, that'd be lovely because it'll probably be more of this rambling and me pontificating <laughs> and just doing it hopefully somewhere with a sunnier background. Yeah, fantastic. I, I'm, <laughs> I rate that. Um, and then... Yeah, fantastic. So for the uh, podcast itself, we're on Instagram as well, and that's Much Better People Podcast. And Twitter is at Much Better Peep, P-E-O-P-1. <laughs> um, and you can find the links in the bio to the website that I have, and the podcast is hosted there. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. It is, like I said at the beginning, uh, in its infancy, it's quite a new podcast. So if anybody wants to come on and they feel like they have a story that they want to share, just contact me through any of those means, or you can email me on Much better people at outlook.com all right well thank you so much nikki and yeah that's that <laughs> bye thank you for having me all right bye